I've heard Austin's a lot like Nashville, actually, in, in some ways. It is. They got a music street there, just like, you know, just like uh, Nashville. And um, and the whiskey scene there is just exploding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wanted to say that you guys, you called it, you know, us whiskey nerds or yeah. guys that talk about whiskey all the time. And they're all over the nation now. Yeah. We're, we're spreading out and making, we're trying to preach preach the gospel on whiskey. I don't like to call us whiskey nerds at all. Yeah. Uh, like that's kind of shameful because I don't think it's nerd. We're just we're just well, you're, bourbon you're, bullshitters. <laughs> well, you make it very clear you're not a sissy. You're not a nerd. I'm so. definitely not a, a a nerd. You know, I don't think that the, of, of us as that. And I would yeah. think that you you appreciate a great product. You like to talk about it. We love to talk about it. You know, that's that's yeah. what it's about right there. Yeah. Welcome to another trip down the bourbon road with your hosts, Jim and Mike. So grab a glass of your favorite bourbon and kick back. We would like to thank Tommy and Gwen Mitchell from Logheads Home Center for supporting this episode of the bourbon road. Find out more about their fine rustic furniture at logheadshomecenter.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Shannon. And I'm Mike Hyatt. And this is The Bourbon Road. And today, Mike, where are we? We are at Nelson Greenbrier Distillery in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, this is one of my favorite places to come in the, in the United States. Well, it's always good to be in Nashville. Yeah. It's always good to be down here. You and I have a good time here. We got brought the wives this time. We're going to hit the honky-tonks tonight. Yeah, I think Vivian and Mel are probably drinking wine or drinking whiskey somewhere in Nashville right now without us. They're going to be in good shape when we, when we find them. Yeah. All. It's Valentine's Day. <laughs> but who do we have with us today? We got... Andy Nelson um, and his brother is not with us today, but they are the uh, not founders. What yeah, would you call we, it? I, we're, we call ourselves founders or re or co re founders, maybe reestablishers. Reestablishers. Sure. Yeah. Know. Choose your own title. <laughs> but you're the owners. Mm-hmm. Well, Andy, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. So before we sat down with you here, and we're, we're actually in your conference room in the distillery here. We just, Mike and I just took a tour. And uh, you can actually hear the tours going by on the outside. So we might pick up a little bit of that when we're uh, we're talking here. But to, hey, guys, understand this is a working distillery. They've got a lot of tours going on. Really popular place. Yeah, we had uh, Ben as a tour guide, and he, very informative, Um knew the history, the lineage of Nelson Greenbrier all the way from Germany, all the way to Nashville, Tennessee. And I, you know, I love that you're incorporating that history into your tours. Mm -hmm. It's a great story. And I always love a story, right? Yeah. Well, uh, we don't like to waste a whole lot of time getting to the whiskey. So, uh, Andy, we'd like you to introduce uh, what you have for us as the first pour in the first half. I would be happy to. So this is our newly released as of just a few months ago, our Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. So this is the uh, namesake whiskey of the company. And, you know, like you said, the history is yeah, is a big part of what we are. It's the reason that our company exists now. And this brand is a, you know, kind of the big part of the history. So this is, you know, the original label as it once was. Uh, and this is the original mash bill as well. Corn, wheat, malted barley, put it at uh, 91 proof just to honor the, uh, the year that Charles Nelson passed away, which was 1891. Um, you know, drink up. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So this this is a Tennessee whiskey. Correct. Yeah. So and it we'll, does it we'll, does undergo that Lincoln County process. Ten- Tennessee weeded whiskey. Tennessee weeded whiskey. That's right. How many other Tennessee weeded whiskeys are there? Is um, there any at all? Not many. I am not a hundred percent sure actually. Um there there's probably gotta be. Uh you know, most people know the the kind of big two Tennessee whiskeys, but they're probably forty or so members of the Tennessee Distillers Guild, fairly relatively newly formed in the last few years but uh yeah we're you know I, i'm not quite sure how many other weeded ones there are i don't know but i know this tennessee's got it going on because there's a lot happening down here with the new tennessee whiskey trail and, uh, and yeah. all the distilleries that are coming to coming to light and it's a it's a long state so to do that trail is where kentucky has everything kind of concentrated concentrated around louisville kentucky and lexington Tennessee spread off wait, all the way from Knoxville, all the way back down to Memphis, right? Yeah, you can tell. I mean, it's about probably a seven-hour drive from 
uh, east to west borders uh, of the state. So yeah, there it, it's pretty well concentrated, like a, a whole bunch of distilleries on the trail and the, the eastern portion of the state, uh, Upper East Tennessee and such, and then a handful of here in Nashville and then um, one or two uh, over west of Memphis. Well, it's got kind of a golden to amber color. I think the nose on it is uh, it's soft like you'd expect out of a weeded whiskey, but it's got um, it's got a nice caramel nose to it. It's got a little bit of a kind of a, a banana peanutty nose to it. You get that, Mike? Well, I don't know. I'm already over here drinking. You know yeah. me, Jim. <laughs> put a weeded whiskey in front of me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna sip on it all day. What I do get in the taste of it, though, uh, was what we were talking on the tour, is I get peanut butter. Not just nut nuttiness. I get peanut butter yeah. off of this. Uh, maybe that's the oiliness of it or something. Now, what's the proof of this, Andy? Ninety-one. Ninety-one proof. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a this is a blend of different aged whiskeys. It is, yeah. It's uh, at different ages and from you know column and pot still. Okay. So, uh, it's a blend of whiskeys from you know a little bit of two year old and then the vast majority of it is four or five years old. Yeah, I think Ben told us it was greater than seventy five percent of the older whiskeys. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yep, and the older stuff is from a pot still here that I'm sitting here looking at right out the window now. And uh call that Miss Louisa, named after my triple great grandmother who ran the distillery after Charles, her husband passed away, my triple great grandfather. Well, let's let's get into that story. How how did you find out about your the the distillery itself? Well, we grew up knowing a little bit about it that but i mean a very very little so we just thought you were some just backwoods moonshiners basically we you know we didn't even we were so young and didn't even have necessarily a thought that went even that far it was what we had heard was this kind of fantastical story of you know our ancestor falling off a boat in the atlantic ocean uh with the family fortune in gold kind of attached to him somehow um and then that there was some sort of whiskey thing um in greenbrier tennessee but at that point we didn't know where greenbrier tennessee was um and we didn't even necessarily believe you know we'd heard dad tell this story of you know what we now know is charles's father falling off the boat with the gold and um but we just thought it was kind of a you know storytellers embellishment type of thing and uh and so that's that's kind of the background of, of what we had known growing up and so kind of skeptical a bit and then 2006 i was right out of college about a year out of college charlie still had a semester left and uh, our dad had gone in with some buddies to buy a full cow worth of meat from this butcher in greenbrier tennessee so greenbrier by the way is about you know 30 minutes north of us here in nashville and um right between us and the kentucky border so we go up there to buy to pick up our quarter of the cow worth of meat from this butcher and we stopped to get gas right before we get there. And there's this historical marker, which you guys saw on the tour. There's a, a picture of it up on our, on our wall here in the tasting room. It said Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery on it. And as soon as we saw that, it was just this wild moment. Like, oh my gosh, this is real. Like this, you know, clearly what we had thought of, maybe he was a moonshiner. Maybe we didn't know if the business was legit or anything until this moment. We realized they're probably not given historical markers to, you know, just, just everybody Ne'er do well moonshiners yeah. yeah and so it was kind of this immediately surreal moment and it said one mile east on long branch road charles nelson opened the greenbrier distillery and uh and it all became real you know and it was just this kind of crazy moment so um so what could we do but fill up the tank and and head over to the butcher's house and maybe he knew a little bit more so we filled the tank, we head about a mile east and we get to the butcher's house. And it's, by the way, just this, you know, kind of country butcher, you know, it's his house and then the kind of slaughterhouse a little bit uh, behind that on his property. So we went and we asked him what he knew about the old distillery. And he said, well, I know a, a good bit, but look across the street there. So, you know, probably 50, 100 yards away, I uh, saw this old barrel warehouse that we saw driving up, but we just didn't know what it was. And it was this old barrel warehouse from the old distillery and we walked in there saw it smelled it smelled like old uh tobacco because they used it to cure and, and uh smoke tobacco uh after the distillery shut down spoiler alert this distillery gets shut down eventually before we bring it back <laughs> so uh then we went to uh the original spring house the spring was still running went and drank from the spring and you know each again each moment each passing step that we took was just a bit more surreal and it was just 
you know, almost an out of body type feeling like this was, is, this is crazy. Was you fireworks know? were probably just going off in your head mm -hmm. at that time, right? A young guy just graduated from college. Yeah, thinking, absolutely. Here yeah. is my, here's my fortune in the world right here. hundred percent. And, and so we go and it was still kind of like, all right, what, what uh, kind of processing it, you know, in our minds and figuring what it, what is this all about? And so, then the butcher said, well, why don't you go to Greenbrier uh, Historical Society, just a couple blocks back from where you came. So we went in this old Victorian house kind of dedicated to the history of the town of Greenbrier in different rooms with different sort of themes, if you will. And um, one of those rooms is about the distillery. So we looked and there's glass cases and things on the wall of old artifacts, old ads and articles and such, some of which you see here in the distillery on our tour. And uh but the thing that really, really kind of brought it home to us was this glass case with these two original bottles of Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey with our name on it. And it really was just this boom, this moment where we knew this is this is what we're here to do. And uh, these bottles looked almost exactly the same as the bottle we're drinking from now. Um, so we've taken that, you know, that old label, the actual the bottle mold, the glass mold. We actually had 3D scanned and recreated that exact mold and made a couple modifications to make the glass a little bit stronger than, you know, from the pre pre 1900s. But um, but yeah, that's what we did. And so trying to recreate it as much as we could. That's awesome. That's a great story. Well, let's go into the way, way back machine just a little bit. And let's talk about your great, that's three greats, right? Great, great, great grandfather. That's right. So what we were able to gather from the tour and some of the discussions out there is he was a kind of a, a, a candle maker, soap maker. Uh-huh. And uh, this was in Germany in the early 1800s. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of mid, mid 1800s. So Charles, who was my like you said, triple great grandfather. Mm -hmm. So his father, my quadruple great grandfather was John Philip Nelson. And he owned a soap and candle factory in Germany. So Charles was born, uh, in 1835, uh, as a matter of fact, on the 4th of July, which I think is kind of a cool thing. Uh, in, and in Germany, in Germany, in Germany. yeah, <laughs> small town called Hagenau. And, um, uh, so John Philip, the father decided that he wanted to move the family to America. So he sold the factory and had all the proceeds from the sale and the rest of the family fortune converted into gold coin and had special clothing made to hold all of the gold on his person, you know, sewn into his clothing for the boat ride over. And, uh, so this was 1850 and they got on a boat called the Helena Sloman sets out from New York uh, to New York from Hamburg. Uh, and while they're at sea, you know, big storms, high winds, the boats damaged and slowly in sinking condition for several days. And, uh, and another boat comes by to rescue the passengers, kind of transfer them, um, from the Helena Sloman onto this, the Devonshire, as that was called, um, on these little kind of rescue dinghies, if you will. And, uh, so everyone's transferred except for the final, the final boat, holding, I want to say 12 or 13 passengers. I can't remember the number, but John Philip was among them, um, on the very last one. And of course, remember he had the family fortune in gold sewn into his clothing. So, uh, so everyone gets there safely, but John Phillips on the last boat in the transfer from, from ship to ship, that boat is, I guess, overtaken by a wave and capsizes. Well, everyone on board drowns, including John Philip, of course, probably quicker than the, than the rest of them, because he has, you know, God knows how much weight weighing him down with a family fortune in gold. So he's somewhere, as far as I know, still at the bottom of the Atlantic. Um, but the rest of the family ended up making it back to New York safely. Uh, but of course with quite literally nothing but the clothes on their backs. And so it was kind of that, that world that they landed in the, the context that I love to, to kind of mention is, uh, if you've ever seen the movie gangs in New York, Oh yeah. It's that's the time that they land. I mean, this is 1850. That movie, you know, Bill the butcher is just dominating New York city in the 1850s. It's a tough time. Oh yeah. Especially for a young fatherless family. Exactly. I mean, Charles was 15 at this point and kind of he and mom were head of the household at that point. So just having watched, quite a traumatic, uh, ordeal with their father falling off the, the boat and drowning with the, every penny that they owned. So that was kind of, uh, the end of that chapter and the beginning of the next. So they get to New York and, uh, obviously they've got to start a new life. They, they, they don't have all the money that they, that they had received, I guess to book passage on a ship like that, you got to have a few dollars, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd imagine so. It's, uh, a, 
cool sort of fun fact about that Helena Sloan and it, it only took three voyages from Hamburg to New York and back and on the on the previous two uh, also came a couple other famous uh, German immigrant families and that was the Heinz family of the Heinz food empire um, I guess they settled in Pittsburgh and then uh, the Steinweg family which was of course anglicized into Steinway of a uh, particularly well-known piano Right. Uh, manufacturer and maker. So kind of a cool thing. And then Charles Nelson and what would eventually become Nelson's Greenbrier distillery um, on the, the third and final voyage. So your third great grandfather becomes head of the family at mm -hmm. 15. Yep. He has to earn wages in order to help support the family. Yep. So he, yeah, he finds work at a soap and candle factory in New York. It's called the Hazen Schultz firm works there for a couple years with his little brother, um, probably not earning too much, but then they move the family up to Cincinnati um, Porkopolis, as it's known, and uh, becomes a butcher there. Uh, also much bigger. Well, I don't know if it's a bigger German population, but Cincinnati still today is, is quite well known for its big German population. You, you wouldn't know it because in, in World War II, they took and stripped most of the street names off of the streets there in Cincinnati. Um, up near Finley Market is the the market there they have in Cincinnati and all the streets there were named German names, but in world huh. war two, they stripped almost every street name off and renamed everything you know, to American names. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Good, good, I, I, good fun fact. I lived up yeah. in Cincinnati for four years and yeah. don't oh, just sorry. a little bit about it up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Um, yeah, I did not know that. Um, although we did learn that it was called Porkopolis by a yeah. uh, Cincinnati resident who came down to Nashville and took a tour here. They let us know about that. And that was kind of cool. And a matter of fact, we learned a lot more about that shipwreck um, from another uh, guest here who took a tour. It was this guy, um, Canadian guy who... I don't remember exactly. He talked to Charlie, but it was like somehow involved in the sort of maritime rescue and history uh, of that area. And he said, so he ended up charting the course of the Helena Sloman and showed us approximately where it, uh, where it uh, went down. And as it turns out, that was actually really close to where the Titanic went down as well. Oh, really? Which I hadn't, I'd never thought about specifically, you know, geographically where the Titanic was, but it was a little bit off the coast of Newfoundland. So this was quite a, quite a time before the Titanic, but this was an actual steam vessel, right? That's right. It was the first uh, German steamship to make that transatlantic journey. So, so I guess big, if you're looking to make that journey from Europe to the U S or like the Americas back then, uh, a steamship could cut your, cut your trip in half or a fourth. I, I would guess so. I mean, it's, let's see, it was, about, um, I want to say it was about a month or maybe six weeks journey. Cause I know they, they set sail in October and I can't remember the exact date of 1850. And then, uh, it capsized in, uh, November. I'm sure so. they had to make several stops, uh, especially for a steamship sure. to, to pick on coal or more wood, uh, to make steam with and stuff. And, uh, then it would take, we're both, me and Jim are both sailors, old sailors, I guess, yeah. now at this point. Old salty sailors, you. <laughs> yeah. D dirty old salty sailors. <laughs> that. All right. So let's let's try to pick up where you left off. So they're in Cincinnati. And um, so what's, what's your great, great, great grandfather doing for work at this time? So he becomes a butcher there. Um, and kind of as the big, uh, as a butcher, he learns a lot about the sales, uh, and the production of whiskey. Uh, and the reason for that is he has these relationships with distillers who are, uh, sending their spent grain, uh, to the animals while they're being, while they're still alive to feed them. And so he kind of gains that relationship before he, of course, then butchers the animals, by the way, going even further back to his days in soap and candles, the kind of raw goods that he needs, uh, include fat from you know, animal fat to render down and create these, uh, ingredients for the soap and candles. So that's likely how he became a butcher kind of learned about that and said, maybe I'll, you know, I'm interested in this, let's do it. And then, you know, it just kind of evolved. And so anyways, a butcher in Cincinnati learns about that. And then about 1858, he moves down here to Nashville and starts his own grocery business on what is now second Avenue. But back then it was known as market street. And so really the foundation of that uh, of that store was his, his three best-selling products, which were coffee, meat, and whiskey. Uh, some know it as breakfast, lunch, and dinner, yeah. but I'm not judging. Um, <laughs> this is our business you're supporting here. Thank you very much. Um, and so essentially he was buying, uh, whiskey from a distillery up in Greenbrier, Tennessee. 
like I said, about 30, 40 minute drive from here now. So it took a little longer that back those in those days. Um, but that was, you know, remained a very common practice. They called it rectifying back then as they sometimes do now, but not as much anyway. So he, um, his whiskey, he was buying from that calling it Greenbrier, Tennessee whiskey. He was, he was kind of a pioneer of advertising and marketing and such, as you'll see by some of the ads and articles you'll see, uh, again, here at the distillery on the walls and, and whatnot. But he, um, was also one of the first to put that whiskey into a glass bottle as opposed to selling it by the full barrel or the jug, you know? Uh, and so that helped him a lot in, in gaining a lot of popularity, um, with the everyday consumer, as opposed to just like a full, excuse me, huh? I just nailed the mic there. Um, that gained a lot more popularity with the consumer as opposed to selling, say a full barrel to a tavern or whatever, where they just tap that barrel, uh, right on the, on the bar. So, um, so he was able to sell a lot of product and he realized that his, his whiskey was becoming his most profitable and best selling. And so what he decided to do was give, um, his other two vendors, his, his butcher and his coffee guy, let them kind of take their respective crafts elsewhere and do what they wanted with those products. And so his butcher was Mr. Hill who went and started what eventually evolved into what's now known as HG Hill food stores, which is a, um, middle Tennessee family owned grocery chain here. Um, and then his coffee guy was a guy named Joel Chi. And Joel took that blend of coffee two blocks up the street to what was then uh, the Maxwell House Hotel. So that's actually where Maxwell House Coffee comes from. So they had some great partners. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, it, it's kind of amazing thinking about the 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 eventual power, like the seeds of power in the brands that he had in that one one space at one time. It, it, to me, it, it's uh, going back to Cincinnati. It's how fortunate you are today that he chose whiskey over beer, which most, you know, would think most Germans would pick up beer And Cincinnati is a big beer city. Mm -hmm. Um, and how many brewers are there? And he chose whiskey over that. And maybe there's some lineage there to MGP a little bit, maybe hey, could be you know, right down there. Yeah. Right I bet. You know, it's, you know, what's really interesting is, um, the guy who is currently, uh, the president or CEO of MGP, Gus Griffin, um, we know him and, you know, we've been customers of MGP for a long time, um, but we actually knew him before he was at MGP, just kind of on a personal level. And, you know, he kind of helped us a little bit uh, very early on before we really had a business going. But the point is we knew him personally. And uh, when he became president of MGP, he was kind of touring all their facilities that they had across the country, one of which is now, I think, known as Illinois Corn Processing. And uh, and he was just kind of looking through the archives and he texted my brother this picture of a receipt from, I want to say, uh, the 1870s or 1880s. And it was a receipt for, what was it, 105 barrels, I think. Um, and it was from... Uh, it wasn't called Illinois corn processing, processing back then, but it was a distillery back then. And they sold barrels to Charles Nelson. Wow. And he texted Charlie this receipt and he says, it looks like we've been doing business a lot longer than we thought. <laughs> and that was just the coolest thing ever because, you know, part of the reason we started out, you know, using, doing Bellmead bourbon as our, our product is because we knew that it was a sourced product back then. It was, you know, used in conjunction with a third party distillery, which is exactly what we did. And it's exactly why we did it that way. Uh, and it was just such a cool thing to kind of get that like, oh my gosh, this has been happening since, you know, the 1800s and, and we just didn't even know it. Wow. So he builds this, uh, he builds this brand in mm -hmm. Nashville, Tennessee. Now he's uh, sort of divorced from the from the meat and the grocery into things and the coffee, and uh, and and how big does the brand become? Well, it becomes um, by so 1885. It is the largest distillery in the state of Tennessee. Um, Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey is the largest Tennessee whiskey you know, that in the nation, I mean, it's sold nationwide from coast to coast. It's sold, you know, as far as Europe, Philippines, Russia, from what we can, can gather from records and such. Um, so it was a very, very widespread brand. And, and I think the reason that I mentioned the sort of glass bottle sales is I don't know that he was the first certainly, but he was, he was right there in the beginning of, of right. selling by the bottle. And that, that's gotta help. I they mean, changed the business altogether, I think. For sure. I mean, when you're talking about that pre 1900, that's uh it's not easy to get worldwide distribution 
um, at least overseas distribution for a, for a spirits product, but he was, and, you know, we continue to hear all kinds of cool kind of anecdotes and stories about the brand and, you know, folks who've lived in Greenbrier their whole lives, you know, just kind of stories passed down over the years. But, um, yeah, so it becomes really big. And then, uh, 1891, Charles dies, um, and leaves the distillery to his wife, Louisa, who is of course my triple great grandmother. Um, and speaking of our still that I'm looking at right here, we named that Miss Louisa after her. Uh, and then you can see, um, her, her mural up there on the distillery wall, production floor wall. And, uh, and so she's a big, important part of the distillery that, that whose history really got lost a lot. Um, there's, there's plenty of stuff that we found about Charles, but very little we found about Louisa. And so we wanted to try to kind of, you know, pump up her history and, and bring that highlight that as much as we could. Cause she was just as big a part as, as Charles was. So women really didn't own businesses at that time. They couldn't vote. Right. Right. Um, and that was probably a weird thing for a man to leave his entire fortune to, to his wife instead of his oldest son. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there were some struggles with it, but she kept it running. Yeah, she for sure did. And that's exactly why we're, we're so proud of this. I mean, you look at, again, at the context of it, she didn't have the right to vote, um, you know, here in Nashville, the buckle of the Bible belt, so to speak, it was, uh, most definitely seen as a very sinful enterprise and, um, not something that many people were proud to be associated with, uh, Louisa most certainly was, I mean, she kept the thing going, uh, and, and grew the business and with certainly tons of pressure from the outside, whether it be just regular, you know, society at large or specific kind of, uh, temperance groups, you name it, whatever kind of pressure there was. And so she ran it up until 1909. So 1909 was when statewide prohibition hit Tennessee. Now that's 10 years before federal prohibition and the Volstead Act. Um, so that was kind of unique. Tennessee was one of the first states to enact prohibition on that statewide level. So it, pure speculation here, but in my mind, it's likely that it was almost an, a, a relief for Louisa to shut the thing down almost like, okay, this is just an ex, a nice excuse to like get out of the business. Um, because now it was, it, well, forgive the, uh, the silly word. It's like, it was, legitimately illegal now. Um, it, it's something that, you know, okay, we can get out of this, get the pressure off us and, and go into banking. Now, how did they get into banking? As it turns out, Charles, two years before he died in 1889, ended up investing and in, in helping start a bank called Nashville Trust Company. And so they had that, you know, cause he was a very well, sort of wealthy businessman in his day before he died. And so he was able to get into that venture. And so the family had something very lucrative to fall back on. Fortunately, they didn't have to get into bootlegging or whatever, but, uh, so it was perhaps an easy decision. I don't want to speak for Louisa, but, uh, this is just, again, my speculation, it kind of makes sense. And so that also would go into, you know, we're, we're asked plenty, uh, how in the world did you just have no idea what was going on all growing up? You didn't know anything about this. And my, my thinking is that it's in all likelihood, once it shut down, Louisa was not likely telling, you know, the kids in the family, Hey, you know, hold your heads high. We're still proud distillers. You know, it was like, all right, look, this, this history is, is over. This is done. Uh, you know, we did well, but we're in banking now. We don't need to be going talking about how proud sinners we are, you know, or, or that kind of thing. And so, um, and so with every generation thereafter, it, you know, it got talked about less and less. And so each generation knew less and less. Hence when it got to, uh, you know, Charlie and I, and even our dad barely knew anything at all, just cause it kind of got swept over the, under the rug over the, you know, the preceding hundred years. Now she did some pretty honorable stuff though. Her business shuts down. She takes all of her assets, which is liquid assets and ships it up to Louisville, Kentucky and still selling it. Mm -hmm. But she Nelson or Greenbrier, Tennessee would probably be dead today if it wasn't for her because she paid her workers right for six years. Yeah. So she, you know, when, when, uh, state, uh, when the state enacted prohibition, 
um, the distillery shut down, but she still had about 8,000 barrels left in inventory. And so because Kentucky had not yet enacted prohibition, uh, they sent the barrels up there to, to Louisville and they had an office at 100 East Main Street, which is right now kind of the heart of Whiskey Row. I think right now that that building is actually a new, you know, University of Louisville Art Department building, if I'm not mistaken. But um, uh, nice, fancy kind of glass building look, looks right. cool. Uh but yeah, and, and that was one of the things, I mean, on, on so this is, again, one of the unfortunate things about Louisa and her history is that it got kind of got lost. And so we, there's so many details about these things, um, you know, treating the workers right and et cetera, and things that we found from Charles's obituary. I mean, a matter of fact, one of my favorite things that I, um, that's on there is talking about, yeah, uh, I, I don't want to butcher the quote exactly now, but paraphrasing, it was like, you know, Charles wouldn't just pay people what he, what they would take. He paid them what they were worth. And there's a example in his obituary talking about if someone uh, worked who would work for 50, $50 a month, but they were worth a hundred, he'd pay them that hundred. Cause that's what they're worth, you know, treating people with respect and, and paying them their due, not just what they would take, sure. you know, to, to get by. So, so that was a really important thing to us. And I, I think that that's an amazing legacy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really, um, really an amazing thing to, to hear and makes us feel a lot better about, or not, not that we had anything to feel bad about, but it makes us feel very good about his legacy and how he kind of treated people and, and the way he went about things. That's not the typical tycoon of the day right there. Exactly. Um, a guy that back then a tycoon of a business would try to squeeze every little penny he could get out of his workers and out of his company and uh it sounds like he was more worried about hey if i pay this guy better he's gonna do better work for me mm-hmm. therefore my company's gonna do better and it sounds like he was him and, and louisa were both doing great things mm-hmm. yeah yeah well i tell you what let's uh let's keep sipping on this tennessee whiskey here and uh and we're gonna take a short break and when we come back um we'll visit another expression of yours and uh, we'll talk a little bit about more about like what you have going on and what, what's in the future for you guys. Sound good? All right, let's do it. All right. We would like to thank Tommy and Gwen Mitchell from Logheads Home Center for supporting this episode of The Bourbon Road. Logheads Home Center, nestled in the hills of Kentucky, is an industry leader in building handcrafted rustic furniture. Family owned and operated, they take pride in offering only the very best for their customers. The Logheads, and that's what they like to call themselves, are skilled woodcrafters who are passionate about creating rustic furniture for people who appreciate the beauty of natural wood. Owners Tommy and Gwen don't just sell the rustic lifestyle, they live it. And you can be sure that Logheads Furniture will always be handcrafted in Kentucky by artisans who embrace the simple way of life. Logheads Rustic Furniture is made from northern white cedar, a sustainable wood that's naturally rot and termite resistant. Its beauty and quality will add warmth to your earthy lifestyle for generations to come. Be sure to check out everything they have to offer at logheadshomecenter.com. And while you're at it, give Tommy and Gwen a shout on Facebook or Instagram at Logheads Home Center. Distillery, Andy. I gotta say, man, that that to Nelson Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey for it to be a weeded whiskey. I gotta applaud you guys. What do you think, Jim? I, I like it. I like it a lot. I think it. I think it's actually got a very. Um, there's a lot of notes to it. I think it. You can taste kind of uh, the story they're trying to tell with it. I mean, I picked up. Um, I picked up a lot of notes, and honestly, I think that you know you have a little bit of that younger whiskey in there, and I think it brings something to the game. It really does. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the, the older four and five year old whiskeys give it the, the body and the, and the, and the breadth that it needs to be a good whiskey. But the notes that you bring in from those younger whiskeys are, are nice. They're a nice touch. Thank you. I'm, I'm super glad that, uh, Michael Veach is the one that introduced us to that. Yeah. Um, you pulled it out and we, I'm, I'm so glad he introduced it to us. Only thing I'm kicking myself is, is me and Jim were down here. I think the weekend that was released, we actually walked in here and it was, you guys were slam packed. 
And we were like, our wives are like, no, we are not doing this <laughs> I mean, right There now. was a lot of people. There was a lot there. of people. But I'm kicking myself because we didn't pick up a bottle that day. Yeah. Um, if I'd have known it was weed or whiskey, I'd have grabbed a bottle right there. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I know. I certainly appreciate the feedback. And we're really excited because, you know, we knew that there was going to be um, – uh, a little bit of this younger whiskey, but we, we went through plenty of flavor, you know, profile taste things and figuring out what the blend was going to be. Uh, and inventory wise, this is what it had to be for now, but like, you know, less than uh, about a you know, year or less from now, youngest will be three years old. And mm-hmm. then from a year from then youngest will be four. So it'll, you know, this, even having two or three year old whiskey in here will, will only be a temporary thing as our inventory continues to age. So I'm really excited about that to see. Well, I'm a true believer that a younger whiskey does have things to offer. Um, you know, a lot of those things will disappear with age, even Mm -hmm. the good stuff along with it. So, you know, some of the nice notes that are brought by a younger whiskey will tend to disappear over time as well. I guess, you know, another company that kind of does that blending with the younger whiskeys is Bardstown bourbon company. Yeah. And they've got a couple expressions that include some younger whiskeys and they're very nice, very Mm -hmm. nice. So, Hats off to you guys on that. It's a wonderful expression, but let's move on and let's talk about what we have for the second half pour. What did you bring for us uh, for the second half? So this is Bellmead Reserve. So this is, uh, I, yeah, this is our uh, newest expression of Bellmead bourbon. Um, and this is, uh, this one is 113.6 proof. Um, each batch is going to be slightly different because it's a variation, you know, a blend of handful of barrels that are selected. You know, we no longer... Uh, for the time being, we're doing a, a single barrel program, but we certainly have picked barrels. We'll taste taste each barrel one by one and make sure to see if it's kind of single barrel worthy or or will work better in the blend. And so these a lot of these uh, that we use for the reserve are single barrel worthy, meaning they're just kind of outstanding on their own and really need to be highlighted. So that's what we've got in this reserve. So what did you say the proof was again on this? This one's 113.6. Okay, great. So we definitely kicked it up a little bit. Yeah. So oh, yeah. we had the, was it the 91 proof? Uh-huh. Is that right? You're the 91 proof version Tennessee of this whiskey. during the tour? Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. no, I'm sorry. The, the Bell Mead. What yeah, was the, the Bell Mead Classic is 90.4 proof. 90.4. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is a, uh, well, I'll let you guys kind of yeah. do your thing, but little kind of bolder flavors, yeah. a little more, uh, dark more intensity. Yeah, definitely. Dark, dark cherry. Now, what is the typical age of this? Um, you know, you know, seven to ten. Seven to ten. You know, okay. we can go go older. Don't usually go younger, but really the the important thing to us in any kind of blend is not the age or frankly even the source of the spirit. It's, you know, the flavor profile and the, sure. the end of it. Cause we've learned over the years that uh, you know, blending and and flavor profile kind of creation is really the the one of the big keys to this. It's you can be the world's best you know, masher or best fermentation scientist, best distiller, best, you know, any of these things. Um, but even if you have really excellent things, you can put them in a blend and they just don't turn out as well as kind of the sum of their parts. So right. uh, the key is kind of taking something and, and yielding something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Right. And that's, that's where the art lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So this is a, this is definitely a darker liquid than, than your other. And, and you would expect that from a, this is more or less a cast strength, version mm-hmm. of, of uh, a small batch. Um, how many barrels go into a batch of this typically? Um, as of right now, not usually more than seven. Okay. Uh, to be honest, a lot of that is driven by the largest physical tank that we have. Can't really hold more than that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one thing. You know, I was going to say that the Bellmead brand has become uh, quite respected in the world out there, in the world of, you know, us, us, us consumers. Nerds. You know, nerds. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you can always expect a, a great batch from Bellmead. Uh, Bellmead also has some other expressions and we can talk about those later. But um, it is something that usually gives uh, an impression of uh, it's going to be a good bourbon. You know, you're, you can trust what's the, what's in the bottle there. Well, good. I, I Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, we certainly work very hard to do the best job that we can. And then I think one of the big elements that... Uh, that can sometimes be left out is that kind of the, the heart and soul that you put in to your product. Um, you know, you can have all the science you want, but, um, if you don't feel the passion for it, that's, that's going to come through in the end, in the end result. And so, you know, we have a lot of passion for this and we, we feel very strongly about it. And, and I, the hope is that that comes through, you know, just even, even something as simple, just as, you know, again, going back to kind of treating employees with respect, doing, you know, 
kind of doing things the right way as human beings, as opposed to just trying to like, certainly not trying to fleece anybody or, or whatever, but I just, uh, you know, being decent and, and putting your best foot forward and having a passion for it is really a big key ingredient. So Bell Mead's a plantation. It was a plantation at one time. And there was also a Bell Mead, um, racetrack here, right? Mm-hmm. Down, yeah. So Bell Mead Mansion as of, as of now is, um, you know, it was one of the functioning nation's leading thoroughbred farms back in those days. Uh, and now Bellmead Mansion is just a, you know, it's a property that has, you know, tours and is a kind of an old historic uh, venue. Uh, they, they have an event space as well. But uh, the horses on the label were studs at Bellmead Mansion back in those days. What are those horses' names? So uh, <laughs> I know why you're asking Mike, this. You Mike. know exactly why. Uh, for the viewers at home, listeners at home. Um, so the one on the right-hand side of the label is named Bonnie Scotland, who was a, a famous English racehorse who, um, after his racing career was over, came to the U.S. Uh, as a stud and ended up at Bellmead, uh, Bellmead Mansion. And uh, so the original label for Bellmead, actually, we have, we have a... Uh, copy of it in a newspaper ad uh, in the tasting room just on the other side of this wall and it shows a newspaper a big from may 1st 1885 the daily american uh and it shows about a quarter page newspaper ad of you know bellmead whiskeys and it shows the original label so the horse's names were written above them on that original label so uh so bonnie scotland yeah he was a founder of the northern dancer bloodline very early on in that line which uh you know most of the pretty much all the horses that run in modern day kentucky derbies can trace their bloodline back to the uh, bonnie scotland and that northern dancer bloodline some of his descendants include uh war admiral seabiscuit secretary and you know horses that everybody's heard of whether you're a horse person or not yep yeah i mean uh so yeah big big time names triple crown winners etc um anyway so the reason that we took the names off of the label was because the horse on the left goes by the name of brown dick yeah yeah so uh I hope that makes sense to everybody. We get about a 50, 50, uh, blend of people who are like, Oh, okay. I get it. And then the other people are like angry that we didn't <laughs> leave it. like, Oh yeah, I get that too. Well, but you know, times do change. And I think the, the connotation of that word kind of, kind of changed in the 1930s, 1940s a little bit. And yeah, well, you know, the you etymology know. of that word, I, I, it, it is what it is nowadays. So we just, when we had literally everything, that we on owned that. on the line starting this business. It was like, ah, no unnecessary risks. Even if people, you know, understand there are going to be some people who don't know what that is and just no, be you're, like, oh, that's weird. Your tour guide, Ben, he has perfected his story on that. No <laughs> doubt about yeah. it. He, he had it rolling. So he's got a good comedy routine going on in his tour, huh? Yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah, we really appreciated him a lot. He was a, he's, he's definitely one of your employees that's uh-huh. worth his money, I'd say. Yeah, that. yeah, for yeah. sure. He's a good one. Okay, so let let's now talk a little bit about that aha moment that you and your brother had mm-hmm. uh, when you were at the spring and the barrel house out in uh, Greenbrier mm-hmm. and, and sort of take it from there. So you guys decided that this is something you needed to do. Yep. And, uh, and so from the, you know, because the fortunate thing was we didn't have families, careers, any, you know, it was just kind of the world was, uh, was, to quote the late great Tom Petty, the future was wide open. We had, we had nothing to, I mean, I was, we were both philosophy students in college. We weren't like on a particular track for a, for a specific career or anything like that. And it was, we found this passion that we just didn't know was there. And so we had, um, our, our kind of, uh, Oh, I just had something in mind that was going to be funny, but it, I, I totally lost well, I, it. I wanted to ask you, does a philosophy student, do you, do you have to drink a lot of whiskey to do that? Yeah, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> um, you can do whatever you want, and uh, as long as it means something, you're all good. So, I think I, I philosophize quite often when I'm drinking bourbon. I mean, it helps for sure. <laughs> it does, definitely helps. So did you drink whiskey or bourbon in college? Uh, honestly, not a ton. I probably drank more beer uh, in college, but... Uh, Sh- shame on you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It, it may have been good though. Cause I, I find that even now I don't drink a ton. I just don't drink a ton generally. Um, and part of that is because, you know, if I'm out, I'll, you know, have a cocktail or two or, you know, I, I like to try a bunch of things. And so I never drink a lot of any one given thing. And Can you think of that first drink of whiskey as a kid or growing up oh, or yeah, you know, honestly, older? it was, it was probably, uh, Oh, the, yeah. Yes, I can. I don't oh, here it I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it on, Come on, on mic, now. but, uh, <laughs> no, it was fine. It was, uh, 
gosh, I can't remember the, what was it? It was some, some bourbon or whiskey. Anyway, it was whatever. It, there was no really great story. I just remember. Come on now. Uh, no, I think uh, <laughs> we had, my buddy had some, you know, guy outside of the gas station, get it for us or something. And, um, if you'd have been in Texas, that'd probably been me. <laughs> so I'm assuming the night did not end well. Huh? Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, maybe that's why I'm in such uh, such good whiskey drinking shape. I know I'm not in good whiskey drinking shape. I just uh, is because that that night I actually only drank a little bit, but it was enough to just get that perfect buzz. And it was like, have that permagrin on me all night. Okay. And we were like, you know, of course we were 21 years old. Uh, of course. And so the, uh, the night ended actually, actually quite well and was very pleasant. And so that put a, a very good taste in my mouth, so to speak, um, for whiskey, for the, for the foreseeable future. So, so that was really good. It's not, you know, cause I always hear people talking about, Oh, I can't, I can't drink tequila. I had a bad night on that in college or, you know, those kind of classic tales of debauchery. But, uh, whiskey for me was actually a really good, pleasant experience at the first and, you know, in the beginning. So, so you get, you, you had that, that explosion of ideas, both you and your brother. Could you see the excitement in your brother's face? Oh, a hundred percent. In fact, he was probably way more, um, visibly excited than I was. I'm kind of like, I'm accused of that often where, uh, of not having, any vis I'm like, even though I know something is really awesome, I just kind of keep a straight face and I can't, I don't know. I just, yeah. Even <laughs> though I know I'm not, I'm not like trying to be that way, but people just, I'm hard to read, I guess, in a, an exciting situation. But he's not, he's, Oh no, he, he's much more, uh, cause he's, you know, he's the more outgoing guy. And so I, people will, uh, you know, he'll make a best friend in five minutes out of everybody in the room. You know, like, and I'm just like, if someone's say, you know, anybody like that, Jim? <laughs> yeah. If someone's it's, not coming up to me to introduce themselves, I, you know, it's not because I hate people. It's just because I'm naturally a lot more shy. Could, when we first met you today, I could see you when we shook hands. You, you yeah. Gave me that eye up and down, like, okay, this I'm going to size this fellow up right here. And he probably yeah. philosophizing about me. For sure. I, I, I can definitely overanalyze things and just yeah. get in my own head a lot. Well, I think, man, this is a great whiskey you're drinking. Yeah, so this is a very rich and bold whiskey. I think this has a lot of flavor to it. It is, uh, and I've had this before. I've had, not, not this particular batch, but I've had it before. A lot of respect for it. I, I'm going to be, it's going to be hard for me not to carry a bottle out of here today when we leave. Oh, yeah. I'll be sure, I'll be yeah. sure to tell you we that. We know but a guy. We can, I'm, we can help you I was thinking, I'm gonna, I was going to try to take uh, Andy's coffee cup because I just keep looking at it and... You know, oh yeah, uh, keep as Austin. A, as weird. a Texas guy, I, I grew up probably ninety miles north of Austin, and um, Austin is definitely weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm I don't know if I'm ashamed. It just is what it is. But I've never actually been to Austin. I was just in Dallas uh, last week, earlier this week, and I've heard Austin's a lot like Nashville, actually, in in some ways. It is. They got a music street there, just like. You know, just like uh, Nashville, and uh, and the whiskey scene there is just exploding. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted to say that you guys, you called it, you know, us whiskey nerds or yeah. guys that talk about whiskey all the time, and they're all over the nation now. Yeah, we're, we're spreading out and making, we're trying to preach preach the gospel on whiskey. I don't like to call us whiskey nerds at all. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of shameful because I don't think it's nerd. We're just we're just well, you're, bourbon you're, bullshitters. <laughs> but you make it very clear you're not a sissy. You're not a nerd. I'm so. definitely not a a, a nerd you know i don't think that the, of, of us is that and i would yeah. think that you you appreciate a great product you like to talk about it we love to talk about it you know that's that's yeah. what it's about right there yeah i well i for sure uh use the term nerd uh with great affection because i was um you know everyone when you use the word nerd you kind of think back to high school and the the groups and cliques and i was i was maybe not a high school nerd but i was not a cool kid that's for sure and so i appreciated the so-called high school nerds a lot more I, I identified with them a lot more and so i just think of it a different way uh you know with because uh, they're they're sort of sort of nerds for so many specialty things now um that that's so that's the way i think of it uh because i can i can definitely appreciate it and kind of enjoy it but uh i i also for sure understand maybe that's the philosopher in me coming out there's like 
there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. There's pros and cons to both sides. Sure, right. But so you um, you guys decided to go ahead and pull the trigger on this thing. Oh yeah, and uh, and. I mean, it's an uphill battle, right? Starting a distillery and it's a big steep hill. Nobody, yeah. nobody wanted to open up their wallet to you. No, not even close. So we, yeah, we started out and, and our initial plan was to, well, if this shows how naive we were, we thought that uh, raising money was going to be the easy part. You know, it was kind of as simple as like, oh, we, we know some rich people. We can do this. We got a cool story and let's do it. They'll give, you know, we gave ourselves like three months before we you know, finished our goal of raising however much it was. And, uh, and so that did not happen at all. I mean, it literally took us two full years before we even got dollar one. Funny thing about rich people, they like to make money. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like there's a, they didn't, they didn't make their money by giving a bunch of unproven philosophy students, uh, a wild amount of money. Let's say you were 20, I was 24, 24, yeah. 24 at that time. And you're mm-hmm. asking people, to, a 24 year old, give you some money. Yeah. And of course their questions were, well, you know, what's your, what's your sort of pedigree here? Do you, do you, have you ever worked in a distillery? Have you ever run a business? Have you ever run a distillery? Have you taken a business class even? Uh, and the answers to all of those were no. Uh, and so it's not an easy thing to well, hear. Well, we got this name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so what, what the, what we heard over and over and over again was like, well, that's a great story. Good luck. Yeah. You know? So, uh, you know, I'll support you, you know, if you guys can get this going. And so one of the things, the very frustrating things, it's hard to understand, um, as an amateur fundraiser is, uh, when you first learn, that, uh, the idea that people saying, well, I've got a lot of money and I'm an investor. Uh, what's, uh, what's this guy or this gal doing? Are they in? No but they're on the cusp and like, all right, well, let me know if this person is, uh, is in if, and if they do it, then I'm in. And it's just that domino effect. It was like, but why can't, Oh, come on, man. Be, Who wants be, to be bold. First? Like be that first guy, you know, step out on a ledge here and, you know, it just took a while. So anyway, we had to, um, kind of change up our business plan, reel things in and say, all right, let's, and, and that, at that time, around that time is when we discovered what Bellmead bourbon itself was. So we were first looking at the Tennessee whiskey because we knew a little bit more about that. And we discovered, okay, he also made Bellmead bourbon and he made it in such a way that he never actually distilled it himself. Charles didn't. He worked in conjunction with uh, what's called the Sperry Wade and Company, which is on the little gold medallions on the, the Bell, most Bellmead labels, SW and Co. And they were kind of instrumental in the founding of Bellmead Mansion and that thoroughbred farm. And hence the name Bellmead Bourbon. And so they had a distillery as well that they distilled it. And then Charles Nelson helped kind of age it, warehouse it, you know, bottle and sell it. Uh, that way. And so we figured, okay, what we can do is work with a third party contract distillery, MGP in this case, or LDI as it was back then, and um, and start a little smaller. So we ended up, um, you know, putting literally everything that we own on the line um, as collateral to get started working uh, with MGP and, uh, you know, outsourced pretty much everything at first, um, to prove to people that, you know, we, we can do this. We'll show you that, you know, we don't have experience, but we've got the passion and we're not going to quit, you know? And so, so that's exactly what we did. It allowed us to, you know, grow some more revenues and then slowly attract more investors, people kind of believing in us. And then, so we released Bellmead Bourbon in, uh, March, 2012 here in Nashville. And then, um, 2014, August, 2014 was when we, first uh laid down our first barrel of tennessee whiskey we you know built out our own distillery here that we're sitting in right now and uh have been distilling here and doing tours ever since so the it's a steep learning curve right to go from you know students to uh, owning and running a distillery yeah yeah um i mean we're we're going from students just to students in a different sure. uh capacity i mean it's i'm still a student for sure. Uh, but it, there is nothing that keeps you as engaged as constantly learning and knowing that you've just got to keep this thing afloat. And the thing that'll keep you afloat is, is learning, you know, what, what waters you're treading in now. I mean, just learning and and taking it all in and having a bit of humility and knowing that, you know, there's no, no reason to, uh, to have too big a head, you know, it's like, we knew that we were not going to be right about everything. We didn't even have enough 
confidence to be right in so many ways. It's just absorbing the world around us, talking to, you know, hundreds of people saying, you know, who had the experience and, and who fortunately uh, gave us the respect to to tell us a little bit about the business, the industry, the the technicalities of making whiskey, how to set everything up. And just, I mean, from, you know, from dollar one, uh, you know, business wise and from from proof gallon one production wise. And you guys worked with Dave Pickerel early on, right? That's right. Yeah, he was uh, we we worked with him very early on. We were one of his first clients. And that was uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was tough because we were one of his first clients who who signed up with us. But we also took so long to raise money that he then took on more clients and more clients who then uh, while they, they started working with Dave after us, they got product to market well before us. And it was like, what is, people are just passing us like we're going backwards here. Um, but you know, gradually we kind of got our feet under us, got the, got the funding we needed to get really going as a proper business. And so your Bellmead bourbon, uh, entered the market, had uh, relatively wide acceptance. Mm-hmm. It afforded you guys the necessary revenue you needed to build out your distillery. Now your distillery is here. What's the name of this area? Marathon Village. Marathon Village. So this is kind of the the uh, kind of a shop center with uh, this is for people who are not from Nashville. This is where you would find the the Nashville American Pickers is right right, right down from here. Yeah, Antique, right down the block. Ar- archaeology, which is the marathon, it was a a car made in uh, Nashville, right? Right. Yeah. Marathon motor works is the, uh, actually the name of that, the building at the end of the block. And then, uh, because we are in that neighborhood, the, the business that we actually share a wall with is marathon music works, uh, appropriately named for the kind of honoring the history of this block and uh, neighborhood. So you're, you're in more or less the west side of downtown Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is kind of a trendy area. So there's a lot of tourism here. You get a lot of visitors to your d- distillery tours here. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's a good spot for you. Uh, it's great. I mean, we got very fortunate to find this space uh, when we did. Um, you know, we were looking at a space across town uh, for a while and just trying to make it work. And for, you know, a handful of reasons it didn't, then we we came across this spot and it was just perfect in, you know, in every way. And so, so there's gotta be something inside of you that says, boy, it sure would be nice to be, to be out in Greenbrier, but that just not going to work. Uh, not immediately anyway. I mean, it's still our plan to get something. We would love to build a much bigger facility up in, you know, in Robertson County, um, at the very least. And so that's, we're still working towards that. Um, because it would be very helpful to have, to be able to produce on our own, more than a 750 gallon batch at a time. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the other expressions they have. Mike, we, we got to taste some of those today. Um, one of the, one of the things that we tried it, was that the sherry cast sherry, finish? Sherry cast. First I got, man, your dog here is awesome, man. Oh, thank you. Clyde. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Clyde. He's a good we, boy. We, we seem to, I, I seem to attract dogs, <laughs> <laughs> which is not a bad well, thing. I appreciate that. I think that tells you you're a good human. Yeah. Yeah. That's sherry. Uh, sherry cask uh bourbon i different expression and you guys kind of just leaped into everything and finished bourbons are a, a, a thing now a lot of people are trying it and it seems like you guys have mastered that of of blending and, and uh finishing in a whiskey yeah we um well yeah i don't know i mean i hesitate to say i'm a master in anything just because i don't know uh call me unsure, but, but I, you know, I definitely have confidence in it. And I think we have gotten very good at it. I mean, the sherry cask finish was the first of the cask. It was a matter of fact, our second skew that we released after Bellmead classic. Um, and the idea was just like, Hey, how, how can we, for one, learn a little bit more ourselves, but get another product out there and kind of get more recognition for ourselves from, from the consumer and trade and such. And so um, the idea also came partially from Scotch whiskey. I mean, a lot of Scotch whiskey is either finish or age in, in sherry casks. And we, so we said, let's try it. Uh, and we did, and it worked out quite well. We use Oloroso sherry casks for that. And uh, as a matter of fact, it's, it's still my favorite cask finish that we do. Um, so we're quite excited about that. But yeah, at that time, there were not many um, cask finish American whiskeys or bourbons on the market at all. It was, uh, you know, it was a pretty sparse 
um, landscape in that respect. So you guys also have a Madeira cast finish. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of Exo Cognac would be Exo Cognac. You got mm-hmm. a Cognac finish. You also had, I had something recently, which was your brandy finish, mm-hmm. which was uh, quite interesting. Very bold. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, we'll do. So the Sherry Cognac and Madeira casks are what we call our special cask finish line. And um, those are, you know, certainly available here at the distillery. But then. Um, and those are readily available on many shelves. So those are something you can you can find yes yeah for the most part we may be we may be kind of uh, changing strategies with that a little bit i i don't i don't know 100 percent yet so i don't want to say too much but um they will for sure be able be available at least here at the distillery if you know if you're looking but but for now yeah they're they're available in most markets that we you exist. also have a liqueur that honors louisa right that's right yeah um louisa's liqueur which is a very cool thing i mean it, it I mean, I'll let you guys talk about it if you tasted it, but I love it. It's so good. It's a uh, coffee, caramel, pecan flavored liqueur, 40 proof. Um, a little and bit it, easier drinking a mm-hmm. true dessert. Um, yeah. 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 Liqueur. Absolutely. Yeah. I, think, and, I think you think pancakes, you think, uh, not, you know, not even, syrupy, not right. thick or nothing like that. Molasses or anything no, like that. No, but no milk in it or anything no. like that. Yeah. And right. it's something that lasts last over a year on a shelf you don't have to refrigerate it after opening with it which a lot of that's when i first seen it I, that's what i thought it was is milk product or something right. and you had to refrigerate yeah. it no dairy in it it's not a cream it's just a uh, a liqueur but like you said it's not super thick uh you know molasses not like a syrupy. bourbon cream yeah. right. right um yeah the the spirit the the base of it is actually cane spirit uh it's not whiskey or grain spirit we tried those and you could just with the kind of really nice but bold but still delicate flavors of it you could get kind of a weird grainy or corny flavor and it just didn't work with so the cane spirit just really works well with it so we're very proud of it very happy with it and it's been been doing great and another way to kind of honor louise's spirit and then a great taste like coffee pecan um some caramel caramels yeah, in there. yeah it was yeah. really good yeah, yeah it was really good so you have one other uh barrel finished um expression of the bell mead which has gained quite a quite a, a I know where this is the, going uh, the honey right <laughs> yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah that's a that's a very exciting one and it's uh we're releasing it again here uh March 7th 2020 uh very which excited is, about which that which is about uh 3 weeks from this recording date or about yeah that's Man, right too, we couldn't leave with a bottle of that today that <laughs> oh, god i wish i knew a guy who could <laughs> let you do that yeah yeah um, if only we knew a guy. Yeah. I mean, the story behind that is, is very cool because it was honestly just, uh, uh, not an accident. I won't say that, but it wasn't something that was our initial idea. So there's uh, true bee honey, which is a little bit down South of us near Franklin, Tennessee. Um, they do a barrel aged honey. And so they just asked us, us if we had a used bourbon barrel and we said, yeah, sure. So we gave it to them. They aged their honey it dumped it out. They, and then they asked, do we want it back? And we, it, we had not even considered anything until they asked us. And then a light bulb went off in our head as yeah, of course we want that back. Let's see what we can do with it. And, uh, you know, the first trick was, so honey, uh, has a, a trait, um, uh, honey is hygroscopic, meaning it, it attracts the moisture around it. And so what it uh, does with the barrel, if it's surrounding the inside or the entire inside of a barrel, it's going to attract the moisture from the wood. And so we get that barrel back and there's a little, you know, some honey kind of still in the staves inside, but that wood is, is like, it's almost totally dry. So there's a lot of holes in it. And, you know, cause a barrel is just self sealing because the, the wood is sure uh, swelled with, with moisture. So we had to re, um, rehydrate the barrel from the outside, get, you know, introduce some water to it. So it'd swell back up and and seal itself so that when we put the bourbon back in it, it wouldn't all just, uh, drain out immediately. So, uh, you know, we just checked it out every, uh, honestly few days. Um, we don't have to finish it very long in the, in the honey cask, fortunately, um, because we want to make, you know, it depends on a handful of things, but we want to be sure with all of our cask finishes that it's like, it, there's some subtlety to it. You know, we don't want it to seem like, oh, we just took a, a bunch of honey and put some bourbon into it. It's it's for sure a bourbon with a bit of influence from XYZ, you know, whatever cask right. uh, it's being finished in. So. so I'm assuming on March the 7th, when you release the, the honey cask finish, you're going to have a line around the block. 
Probably so. Uh, yeah. We're we're anticipating that for sure because we uh, we've had experience with the honey cask before. So yeah, yeah that'll that'll definitely be the case. So uh, yeah, get your get your plane tickets now or wherever you're coming from. So what's the what's, you got honey cask? What is the new expression? You got something down the block? You know what's uh, what's there, in the future? We've got a handful of things that are going to be one off, just distillery only. Uh, can't say what they're going to be yet because we don't have label approval just yet. Okay, but okay. Uh, yeah, some really cool things. So we honestly, can't expect very something from yeah, you guys. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Andy, where where can our listeners where can they find you at on social media? So greenbriardistillery.com. Um, social media is at ngb distillery um or for bellmead bourbon it's bell at bellmead brbn and how far are you from like right downtown oh Nashville? maybe a seven minute you know uber lift so we can get an uber over here come mm-hmm. down here they can check out um the marathon building antique archaeology see the tv show people absolutely and come over here and get a sip of whiskey, right? And I, yeah, and I, su- and I suggest the Uber because there's some good, there's some <laughs> yeah. good drinking to be done over here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Andy, it's been a pleasure having you on the Bourbon Road. We really, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day, giving us a tour, letting us hang out with Ben for a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you all for having me. It's been, and, uh, been you know, nice. we're, we're excited about what you guys have and going have going on here, and uh, we look forward to uh, to maybe meeting up with you again. Good deal. I appreciate yeah. the support. So you can find us on. Um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at the Bourbon Road. Um, you can find me on Instagram at One Big Chief, and I'm Jay Shannon sixty three. And we um, we have a website called thebourbonroad.com, and on that website you can read our blogs. We usually write a pretty extensive blog on every interview that we do, and uh, you know we give some information that maybe didn't quite make it into the show, but some extra stuff, some links, and things like that. And uh, we we also have a Facebook group. Uh, on Facebook, obviously, which is, uh, it's a closed group, but uh, request to join. Go to our Facebook page, request to join. There's a couple of simple questions and uh, and we'll get you admitted in there. And it's a, it's a great place for like-minded people. We have a lot of fun. Uh, it's a great time and uh, we share a lot of stories about whiskey. It's, it's just a good time. We got some great people in there uh, from whiskey nerds to master distillers. Yeah. Um, You'd be surprised who's in that group and uh, that can answer if you have a question, who can answer it. Absolutely. Well, again, Andy, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And uh, we're going to move on down the bourbon road. Cheers. 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 We do appreciate all of our listeners, and we'd like to thank you for taking time out of your day to hang out with us here on the bourbon road. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and if so, we would appreciate if you'd subscribe and rate us a five-star with a review on iTunes. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Bourbon Road. That way you'll be kept in the loop on all The Bourbon Road happenings. You can also visit our website at thebourbonroad.com to read our blog, listen to the show, or reach out to us directly. We always welcome comments or suggestions, and if you have an idea for a particular guest or topic, be sure to let us know. And again, thanks for hanging out with us.